Good day, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Marriage and Family Clinic. I want to welcome you. I want to welcome you, my friends, loved ones, and listeners from all over the world. Yes, I got word today that I had a download or two from Ireland. You're listening to us on WGPL, WPCE, and WBXBAM here in Southern Virginia and Northeastern North Carolina. And we're also heard on the internet at www.christianbroadcastingcompany.com. If you would like to hear this or any other of our broadcasts, you can find the podcast by searching C.D. Hodges, that search C.D. Hodges on iTunes or any podcast player on your smart device. You'll find Marriage and Family Clinic there. Marriage and Family Clinic is here to help you break down, gain enlightenment into your relationship dynamics. We hope to help you identify what makes you tick and ultimately help you repair, grow, and perfect your marriage and family relationships. Listen, uh, uh, we're living in some really turbulent times, and I want to continue to discuss the matter of being black in America, and I'm not doing uh, in-depth theses or anything like that. I just want to give you some perspective. And so we're going to continue to talk about being black in America. This is part two. And uh, just to touch a little bit on last week's broadcast, last week I began the discourse by telling you that I had some reasons to be an angry black man in the United States of America. And I also affirmed that in my little finite opinion, there is absolutely a race problem in the United States of America. And I'm going to have to tackle this later, but I just want to make this caveat, place this caveat in there. There is a race problem in America, and it's energized by evil spirits. I will get to that, hopefully, maybe next week. I I hope to get to it sometime. But there is a race problem in America, and it's energized by evil spirits. Now, when I told you the things that made me angry on last week, I told you some things about white people that angered me. I told you some things about black people that angered me. And what I was trying to do, I tried to direct my anger towards making some sense out of an extraordinary, an extraordinarily complex issue. And that's exactly what race relations in the United States are, a seriously, extraordinarily complex issue. Now, even though the uh, the issue of race in America is extraordinarily complex, Uh, There is nothing complex about burning, looting, and killing. Uh, I'm deeply concerned because some of the activities that are going on in the name of protesting appear to be nothing more than opportunists taking advantage of the situation. And then there are those who are intentionally engaging in illegal conduct, trying to stoke the fires and cast legal protesters in a negative light. There are folks who are protesting legally, folks who are protesting peacefully. I don't think there's anybody in their right mind who wants to see people hurt, who wants to see businesses destroyed. Nobody in their right mind wants that. So people who are engaging in that type of activity are taking advantage of the opportunity and they're serving some self-agenda, they're serving some agenda that's not the agenda of the mainstream. And this is very unfortunate because I think this is a watershed moment and a chance to do some real good for our country. Yeah, yeah, some folks are messing it up. And, and I, don't sit on the sidelines watching the revolution go by. Let me say that again. This is a watershed moment. 
and it's a chance to do some real good for our country. And you know, concerning the protests, as citizens, we are guaranteed the right to peaceful protest. We are guaranteed the right to peaceful protest. As a matter of fact, I could argue that the U.S. Constitution demands that we protest when the government ceases to serve the people or equally administer the rights and privileges of the Constitution. Yes, the Constitution, depending on how you read it, the Constitution, depending on how you interpret it, it just may demand that we protest. When this government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people, do not serve the needs of the people. Government is put in place. Government is even sanctioned by God. Government is to benefit its citizenry. The purpose of government is to provide protection for its citizenry as citizens live out their God-given rights. And when the government ceases to do that, when the government does that in an in unequal way, then it becomes the right and even the demand of the citizens to protest. And the protest that we're all privileged to witness today, it, you know, this protest today, it's a movement that doesn't resemble anything in the past. In this movement, unexpected pieces of a puzzle are coming together to send a clear and convincing message that things must change. Things cannot and must not stay the same. The message is undeniable. And I see several things in this movement that I haven't seen in movements in past. There, there are about three or four things that stand out in this particular movement that I haven't seen in movements of the past. The first thing that stands out is I have never seen this many high-level or high-ranking officials, especially in government and law enforcement and the military, taking such an active and vocal role exposing problems with race relations. In this movement, we've seen mayors marching. We've seen police chiefs and police officers uh, marching and kneeling with protesters. You've never seen that before. We've heard senior military leaders make admissions about the military that we've never heard before. We've heard retired senior military officers make statements that we would not have imagined they would make five or six years ago. They wouldn't make those statements until today. That's the first thing that I'm seeing. This movement is like no other that we've seen before in the past. We've seen senators. Senator Mitt Romney, the gentleman who formerly ran for president of the United States of America multiple times, was out marching with protesters? Really? So we've seen things. We're seeing things in this movement that we've never seen before. And I'm just amazed at the number of police officials that would come out and say and admit that there's a problem in their police departments. And even those who came out with a strong rebuke of the action that happened in Minneapolis, the killing of Mr. George Floyd. We haven't seen this before. So that's the first thing. The second thing that stands out in this movement to me is the fact that I have never seen so many white people protesting. 
And I don't mean to sound facetious, but usually most white people take their positions on the sidelines and watch the protests as if it were a sideshow. They add their comments on the news or the safety of newsrooms or the safety of their homes on the couch or whatever the case may be. But usually most white people take their positions on the sidelines and just watch the protests go by. What's the difference this time? I'll tell you what the difference is. The image of that police officer resting the weight of his body on George Floyd's neck and arrogantly assuming an at-ease position with his hand in his pocket as if to say, go ahead and video me, you video recording me and this killing, it doesn't matter to me. Listen, folks, you cannot unsee that powerful image. You can't wipe that from your mind. You know, like a judge says in a court, the jury will disregard that remark. Well, you cannot disregard that image. It's seared in your mind. It's going to be there forever. And you cannot mistake what you see in that image. You know good and well what you saw in that image. That image compelled everyone who saw it to pick a side. That image compelled everyone to determine where they're going to stand, on which side they're going to stand. The only other option is to go against all sensibilities, even human nature, and force oneself to lie about what is so abundantly obvious. Many white people even have decided that what they viewed is worth acting on. And that's why we're seeing so many white people protesting, marching the streets. On a couple of occasions, it looked like there were more white people than black people. Because you cannot unsee that image. That image drives you to make up your mind. That image compels you to choose a side. And many white people have decided that I've got to do something about this. This cannot go on. And the third thing that stands out to me about this movement is this thing has caught fire and spread around the world. It has caught fire. It is literally spread around the world like wildfire. It's gone into countries you never would have imagined that it affected. Northern Europe? For real? Northern Europe? Wow, Germany, Asia, everywhere, this thing has spread like wildfire. Millions of people from many countries are lining the streets of their major cities, protesting what they interpret to be injustice. The whole world understands what Martin Luther King Jr. meant when he said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And people all over the world are protesting because they're saying to themselves, the USA is the land of the free and the home of the brave. They're saying to themselves, the USA is where anybody can make it if they're willing to work hard enough. The USA is the one place above all others on this earth where freedom for all is cherished. They're saying to themselves all over the world, the USA is the standard bearer for freedom and justice. And if they cannot get it right in the USA, we're all doomed in our corners of the world. 
So this thing is spread all over the world. This thing is drawing people together. This is a common cause that pulls us all together as one. This thing is convincing the majority of the world's population that we are one race, the human race, of one blood. The fourth thing, the fourth thing I see in this movement that's like no other is that this movement is led by young people. The young people are leading this movement. And every time I think about that, I think that even Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was only 30 years old. He was only 30 years old when he began his ministry. And in three years, he turned the world upside down. He called other young men from collecting taxes. He called other young men from fishing. He called other young men from several occupations, told them to follow him. And that 30-year-old young man turned the world upside down. Now, I'm not comparing these protesters and this movement to Jesus. All I'm saying is that when it comes to movements that are going to turn the world upside down, they're usually begun and carried out and executed by young people. And a whole lot of us are past the, past the time of, of uh, really being out there in the street, active for a long time. But the young are best suited for this type of work because of their strength. And I believe the Bible says somewhere that he calls the young because of their strength. So that's what I see young people are leading this movement. And I pray for their strength. I pray for their safety. I pray for their wisdom. I pray that God give them strategy. The young people. So those are four things that I see in this movement, movement that uh, I haven't seen before. But then I want these folks to take caution. Caution is necessary. Because this level of activity with this level of energy cannot be sustained forever. These activities must be accompanied by vision, by strategy, along with activism. And all of it has to be geared toward long-term change, long-term change, long-term change. It's for the long term, not the short term. We must ask ourselves how our actions today will help us get to where we need to be tomorrow. And by tomorrow, I don't mean 24 hours from now. I don't even mean one year or two years from now. I mean at least five years down the road, definitely 10 years down the road. How will our actions today secure our place where we need to be down the road? Those are some of the things that I see in this movement that are different from past movements. But there's something else that, that seriously disturbs me. I see one more thing that seriously disturbs me. There's one facet of this whole event that disturbs me deeply. The unjust killing of Mr. George Floyd in plain view is the only thing that angers me more than this other facet of the George Floyd incident. What's the other facet? Here it is. It angers me deeply that there are people who dare attempt to drag Mr. Floyd's name through the mud because of his past. 
I mean, what kind of character do you have to bring up a dead man's past when he was killed unjustly, when he was killed illegally? What does that say about your character? When you want to defend an unjust, illegal killing by bringing up the man's past, and his past was totally irrelevant. We all watched an unjust killing take place right there in the street in broad daylight. We watched a police officer basically suffocate a man who was in custody. The man posed no threat. The man was totally subdued, especially with four officers pinning him down. He was handcuffed with hands behind his back and a knee pressed on his neck. We heard this grown man cry for his mother just before he took his last breath. And to view that scene, to view that scene, and to bring up this man's past and drag his name through the mud, something is wrong with your soul. The only reason to bring up Mr. Floyd's past in that instant is if you want to say he deserved to be killed. Hmm. He deserved to be killed. Listen, listen. Even if he robbed a bank the night before, even if he broke into somebody's house the week before, it makes no difference what he did in his past. The only thing at issue here is whether or not his death was justified. And his death was in no way, shape, form, or fashion justified when he posed no threat to the officers or anyone else. He was totally immobilized and subdued. So everything prior to that is irrelevant if you suspect him of a crime. Do just that. Immobilize him, subdue him, take him into custody so that he can stand trial. That is the American justice system. So the question is whether or not his death was justified. And the answer to that question is a resounding no. George Floyd's death was definitely not justified. It was unjustified and, in fact, illegal. And I'm honestly baffled why we bring up his past. Let's say, for example, even if he was an unsavory character, he was in custody and posed no threat. He couldn't pose no threat as he lay there to life leaving his body. If you know a good reason to bring up his past, please let me know. I'm serious. Email me at cdhodges at hotmail.com and let me know. Inbox me on Facebook, Bishop Carl Hodges. Let me know that there was a good reason to bring up his past. If you make sense, I'll admit my wrong. And I'll even say it myself. Bringing up his past in an attempt to make his past a part of this incident is the same as saying, we got one. It doesn't matter what he did, if he did something, if he did nothing or anything, we got one. Don't matter what the rules say, it doesn't matter what his rights are, we got one. He deserves what he got. Because of his past. That's the only reason to bring up his past. I'm stressing this because I want to make a point. 
And my point is, there is no reason to bring up his past. I had a conversation with a guy on Facebook just a couple of days ago. And the guy said, I don't know anyone that advocates for criminals to be treated with fairness and dignity. And see, that's the problem that causes protests and marches. That's the problem we have with men being killed in the street, black men or anybody else, certainly black men. The problem is some people in power don't believe that all people deserve to be treated with dignity and fairness. Newsflash, the U.S. Constitution advocates for criminals to be treated with fairness and dignity. By the Constitution, a person is presumed innocent until proven guilty. The Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, all amendments, due process, Miranda rights, cruel and unusual punishment. All of us want and deserve equal protection under the law, and that's what the Constitution guarantees. So that all of us, no matter what it is that we're suspected of having done, no matter what we may have done, and especially if we did nothing, we're innocent until proven guilty. My friend says, I don't know anyone who advocates for criminals to be treated with fairness and dignity. My friend, the U.S. Constitution is such an advocate. And millions around the world are protesting because they know they deserve their rights. All of us want and deserve equal protection under the law. And in achieving that, we have to hold everyone accountable. Don't go overboard supporting one side or the other. Don't go overboard supporting the police. Don't go overboard supporting, supporting protesters. You don't get more justice because you're wealthy. You don't get less justice because you're poor or have a record. Any person, regardless of their title, their position, etc., any person who engages in illegal activity should be prosecuted according to the mandates of the law. And everyone, regardless of their station in life, their social economic standing, should be treated with dignity and fairness. The real issue here is whether or not George Floyd received equal protection under the law. And bringing up his past avoids that critical question. We lose track of what the real matter is because we're so busy defending our various positions. And as long as you and I are determined to engage in tit-for-tat efforts to defend our positions, we'll always be on parallel courses. You know parallel, right? Two lines that never meet. They can be ever so close, but they never meet. This individual who I had the conversation with on Facebook thought that I was saying, go easy on criminals. He asked me even, would I have freed Barabbas? And you shouldn't try to get too religious with me. Treating suspects or detainees with dignity and fairness and acting with compassion does not equal ignoring criminal behavior. Remember Dylan Roof? Police subdued him, gave him water, fed him a hamburger. Hmm, dignity. If a man or a woman is suspected of engaging in criminal behavior, they should be arrested and tried. If convicted, an appropriate punishment should be awarded to fit the crime. Yet I would take no pleasure, listen to me, I would take no pleasure in sentencing a person to prison for a long time. Regardless of color, race, religion, etc., even regardless of the crime, I personally would take no pleasure in sentencing a person to prison. 
However, I would do it in dignity and I would do it with dignity and fairness directed toward the convicted person. Judges in courtrooms continue to address convicted felons as sir. That's dignity. Treating a criminal with dignity and fairness is not a weakness. The criminal is not treated with dignity and fairness because he or she deserves it. The criminal is treated with dignity and fairness because those virtues reflect the system and the people who serve it. Those virtues reflect the dictates of the nation's conscience. I would treat a criminal with dignity and fairness because of who, not because of who he is, but because of who I am. If we resort to treating people according to what we believe they deserve without applying some objective standard of justice, then we are most assuredly playing God. And it's too difficult for us to detect our personal biases, let alone bring them under subjection. Listen, God has compassion on sinners every day, including me and everyone listening to me. You don't get much more low down than King David. With all the women in the world that he could choose from, he chose a married man's wife. He impregnated a man's wife while this man was on the battlefield fighting for his rights. He impregnated this man's wife. And then conspired, effectively orchestrated this woman's husband's murder. Returned him to the front line where he would surely be killed in war. You don't get much more low down than that. Yet God refers to David as a man after God's own heart. Really? <laughs> really? Listen folks, God always hurts when he has to whip his people. But he says his chastening is a sign of his love. Dignity, fairness, and compassion never ignore the crime. Dignity says all souls belong to God and we can't treat them any way we desire. Fairness says all will be treated equitably if not equally. Compassion says I take no pleasure in doing what must be done. And if we would follow God's example, there should never be judgment without compassion. Even if, if a person is proven to have committed a heinous crime, judgment should be passed with compassion and the person should be treated with dignity and fairness because all souls belong to God. George Floyd was not granted dignity and fairness. And he lost his life at the hands of men who decided that his rights were not in, important enough. Some have decried all the hoopla made over the death of George Floyd and declared that he was no martyr, especially because he had a checkered past. Folks, I beg to differ. All the hoopla surrounding the death of George Floyd is the greatest evidence and the greatest indicator that his life was just as important as anybody else's life. All the hoopla, all the uprising all over the world is the greatest evidence and the greatest indicator that we are all finite specks of dust in the sight of God and that every soul belongs to God and every single one as important. George Floyd has taken on in his death a road that he probably never would have reached in his life. They say that George Floyd was not a martyr. 
George Floyd was not a martyr, maybe not in the strictest sense of the word, but be that as it may, be that as it may, there is nobody that can deny that the death of Mr. George Floyd ushered in a worldwide movement and nearly turned the world upside down. Folks, you can't deny it. And I don't know about you, but I want to be on the right side of history. Again, I'm not going to go overboard supporting the protesters. I'm not going to go overboard supporting police. I'm going to find my way. And I'm not trying to even go right down the middle. I want to try my best to represent the love of God, the virtue of God. I want to try my best to represent the character of God in this whole thing. And that means I'm going to have to ask myself some difficult questions. And I'm going to charge you to ask yourself some difficult questions. We're going to have to ask everybody's role in this. Remember what the old folks told us. When you point one finger at somebody else, you got three pointing back at yourself. So keep that in mind. Hey, listen, I'm out of time. I've got to get out of here. Appreciate you joining me on today. Uh, listen, if you want to hear this or any other of my broadcasts, you can listen to them, to them again. Search podcasts on iTunes or any podcast player. Just search C.D. Hodges and you'll find Marriage and Family Clinic. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate you. Let me hear from you. Email me at cdhodges at hotmail.com. Uh, look me up on Facebook. Inbox me, Bishop Carl Hodges. I want to hear from you. Thanks again for joining us. Until next week, God bless you. And remember, you can't have peace until you surrender your life to the Prince of Peace. God bless. We're out.